missed the cue when the, when the people pointed at me like, you're on for the live stream. Hey, I'm Pastor Matt. We're so glad you're worshiping with us today. Welcome to Victory Life. If this is one of your first times here and we don't yet know of, of you, we would love to find out a little bit more about you and get the opportunity to share with you about who we are as a church. There's a couple of ways you can do that. You can hop online and go under the New Here tab and fill out a visitor card that way if you've got your phone at hand. Also, in the back of the seat back in front of you, or on the back of the seat in front of you, is a welcome card. And if you want to fill that out and take it to our welcome center just after the service, we'll have somebody there to say hello to you, answer any questions that you might have about the church, and also uh, make sure that you get some communication from us this week. number of announcements I have for you this morning. First and foremost, tomorrow night is our annual church business meeting. That means that we are going to talk about all that the Lord did in 2023. We're going to look forward to what he's going to do in 2024. And we are also going to vote in some new trustees. And so if you are a member, you're eligible to vote. If you're not able to make tomorrow night's meeting where voting starts at 630, you're welcome to go out the hall today and down this hallway right here to room 304. And as I mentioned, if you're a member, you can vote for those trustee candidates. If you have not yet uh, got their bios, you can stop by the Welcome Center today. And right on the Welcome Center are those trustee bios where you can read and prayerfully consider who might be the next uh, leadership as far as our trustees are concerned. Hope you can make it out tomorrow night. Also, in two weeks from now, we're going to have our Pursue Night on March the 8th. That's a night where we come and seek the Lord together. This is an opportunity to just kind of worship and pray with no strong agenda or, or no, uh, no time limits, if you will. We just get to seek the Lord as a church. And so we really look forward to those Pursue Nights. They're really powerful times of worship. Because we've been in a giving series and a worship series, we thought it would be really neat for us to bring offerings before the Lord that night. Now, these offerings aren't directed in a specific place. We're not telling you as a church what to bring as an offering to God. What we'd love for you to do is prayerfully consider with your friends or your family what would be a neat thing to offer God that night. It might be money. It might be a service. It could be all types of different things that the Lord lays on your heart. But at one point in our service, we're going to come up and we're just going to lay our offerings at the foot of the cross. We'll pull the cross forward and just say, Lord, because you're worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise, uh, we're going to offer you an offering and give something to you that evening. So be thinking about that. Be praying about that. Had a great conversation with my kids around the table, the dinner table about that this week, and we're still plotting and planning what we're going to bring before the Lord on that pursue night as an offering. Third, we have a donut and plant sale, which is going to help our Honduras missions team. You can stop by the table in the lobby the next three Sundays, and you can make sure that you place those orders, which will be a benefit to you, but not your waistline. And you can make sure that you can get those Krispy Kreme donuts, which are delightful, but you can also order your plants for Easter. And so that would be a great way to help our team of 13 students and seven adults as they wing their way towards Honduras. Just want to remind you today, this is a new Sunday for us, and that we, in just a little bit, after our time of worship and song, we'll be taking our first live offering in four years. And so we're excited about that. Yes. If you did not bring your Purell, shame on you. No, I'm kidding. But we're really excited about being able to introduce that back as a, a worshipful time within our service and not just uh, something that we do at the end. So with all of that said, I think that's all of the announcements that are incumbent upon me to share with you. So would you stand with us today? And let's prepare our hearts to worship. Worship in song, worship in giving, and worship through studying the word of God together. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, the psalmist talks so much about us pursuing your presence. 
about us coming towards the presence of the Lord and saying, we want to spend time with you. Lord, I pray right now at 9.34 on Sunday morning that the Assembly of Victory Life Church would, as an act of our will, move toward you, desire your presence with all of our heart, because in your presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, and you are worthy of all aspects of praise and adoration and glory that we can heap upon you today, Lord Jesus. So, Lord, we pray that you would meet us here in this place as we worship you in all the ways we know how. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Well, I hope you agree with that prayer this morning, because we're here to worship. We're here to give God glory. We're here to ask ourselves this question, and I'm going to ask you now, is he worthy? Is he worthy today? Has he saved you from your sin? Has he ever healed you? Has he ever provided for you? What has he done for you? You think about that and you reflect on that today. Allow it to be the avenue by which you worship. Is he worthy? Come on.
this morning called Hallelujah to Boast in the Lord. I don't think there's any better way to lift him up. So let's continue to worship by saying Hallelujah unto him.
is worthy today of all our worship, all our praise. I love how that last verse sings, when face to face I see the splendid beauty of the sun, the one who died for me, the lamb who was slain, he died for me. There's only one worthy in heaven today, and that's the lamb that was slain. The angels and elders say it. Worthy is he who was slain to receive all blessing, honor, power, and lots of other things that I can't remember right now, but he is worthy to receive them. The angels and elders are singing it. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, the one who died for me. Is he worthy to you this morning? Is he worthy of your worship? If he is, let's declare it together. I am an instrument of exaltation, and I was born to lift the name above all names. You hear the melody of all creation, but there's a song of praise that only I can who else is worthy? Who else is worthy? There is no
Lord, in the heavens today, the redeemed bow before you. And in this place today, we bow our hearts before you, recognizing that all the things that we can spend our energy and affections on pale in comparison to the one who has died upon the cross and risen to new life to secure our yesterdays, todays, and eternity. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise for what you have done, what you are doing in the midst of your people, and what you are going to do. We thank you for your presence here with us today, and we pray you continue to be with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Well, once again, we are so glad that you are worshiping here with us at Victory Life Church this morning. As I mentioned during our announcement time, we're going to do something we haven't done in nearly four years in just a moment, which is actually worship and giving together as a church, which we are very, very excited about. Uh, with that said, let us bow our heads and let us pray over this offering time and remind ourselves that this is not a function of the church. It's a function of worship. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give today because you first gave to us. We pray that you would accept these tithes and offerings from your people today as an act of worship. We give, Lord, because we need the power of wealth broken over our lives. And we want to say, Lord Jesus, you reign. And you are the boss. You are our Lord. And we give you our all. We give today, Lord, because you are worthy of all that we can give to you. We give to you today, Lord, because our worship to you, we want to be in spirit and in truth. And this is an act of truthfulness, Lord. We give today, Lord, because we desire to see souls saved and made and conformed into the image of Christ. And we give in anticipation of that. So, Lord, we bless and give to your bride, the church, today, thanking you for it being the vehicle of your salvation on earth. And, Lord, we look forward to the day, as we've just sang, that we see you face to face. So, Lord, we give today to proclaim who you are until you come. Accept our worship today, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, when I was a young man, uh, I was a very selfish person. Um, I was raised that 
The only person that'll look out for you is you. And you need to make sure you put yourself first because nobody else would. Um, I came to Victory Life with uh, that thought process in mind. It was a young lady I was interested in. Thought that this would be advantageous to my chances of relationship with her. Um, and then a funny thing happened. I started listening to the actual sermons that uh, Pastor Marlon at the time was preaching, uh, that Pastor Cindy was saying in the youth group. And then I met some people who actually were living out what they were saying in an everyday way. Um, and I decided that there was, that I needed to have that in my life, that there was nothing in my life that was bigger than me. Everything was within my own little wheelhouse. And I wanted, and I wanted that. I wanted to be some part of something bigger. I wanted to, to have that sense of belonging, being part of something bigger. And so uh, on Sunday in April 1992, asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. So living the story. Um, I'm not going to just put that down to just one specific event. Um, for me, the living the story um, at Victory Life has always been the people. It was the people in 1992 that were there when I first got saved and poured into me. Um, and then it was when I got to be older, being able to pour out into others some of the things I knew. And now watching those people that I've poured into pour into other people, including my own children, and watching this, this cycle of life happening amongst all of us. Because if we if we're always if we're always giving, eventually you'll run out. If you're always taking, eventually you become that stagnant pool that nobody really wants to mess with. But if you're always moving in life, if you're always giving other to others and you're, and you're willing to put yourself aside and take as you need to be able to do it, that's what life's about. That's what it means to live with one another. So shine the light. Um, anybody who really knows me or my wife, for that matter, um, you know that youth ministry has just always been one of our deepest, greatest loves. Um, something I've done in one way or another for 25 plus years. Um, and I love being able to sit and watch the kids, or now adults, that I poured into, pour into others. Whether it was... Um, Teenagers that we had at our house all the time, and I cooked endless pots of spaghetti for them to eat and scarf down and just have those one-on-one -on -one conversations with, or just some, the ones that were really just going through a bad time in that moment, and I was just able to be that, that, that 
able to be Jesus for him in that moment? Just be the guy that put the arm around him and say, hey, listen, it's, it's okay. You know, um, those are the moments that are most precious to you. Those are the ones I consider the, the best of the best, if you will. I've traveled all over the country. I've, I've preached on the streets. I've preached in churches. I've done youth conferences. But it's those one-on-one conversations you get to have someone just pull up next to somebody and, and be that personal Jesus in that moment. That, to me, is what shining the light of the gospel is in somebody else. Well, why don't we give a hand for Matt Petrosky? He is one of our elders who was sharing his story there. Um, and Bentley Johnson helped us make that video. I want to dismiss our younger disciples. So if you are sixth grade and under, um, you can go down the hall here and get a message on your level. My name is Peter Knotts. I'm one of the pastors here at Victory Life Church. Uh, and it's my great privilege to share the word with you today. Corey Tenboom uh, is a, a famous Christian writer. Um, and she once said that uh, there is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. There's no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. As I prepared for this sermon, I was reading a commentary, and it was by a guy named Daniel Aiken. And so he was talking about how he, uh, you know, taught this truth to his kids. Aiken has four sons, and he said that one day they were watching TV, and on the TV they heard about nuclear bombs uh, and the, the potential for the, for the world to be just kind of destroyed if a couple people touched a couple buttons. And so naturally, they were afraid. And they went uh, before bed, and they were talking to their dad about what they saw on TV. And they asked him, Dad, are you afraid? And Aiken responded, no, I have no worries. The world is in Jesus's hands. He has plans for it. It says in Revelation 21 and 22 that he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And so nothing's going to happen to this earth until he does it. He said, God has no problems, only plans. One of my former pastors used to say a similar thing. Whenever something was going wrong in the church, whenever we were stressed out, Whenever we were, you know, feeling our heartbeats accelerate because something bad had just happened, he would say, hang on. Jesus is still on his throne. Jesus is not stressed about what's happening right now. He's not surprised. There's no panic in heaven. Jesus is still on his throne. It's because of who God is and what he's done that he alone is worthy of our worship. And when we are focused on worshiping the one who sits on the throne, we see the rest of our life with a different perspective. When we're able to say, when we're able to affirm and keep it anchored in our brain, Jesus is still on his throne, even in the midst of this that I'm going through right now. We have a different perspective. And so today, we're going to take a trip to God's throne room. We're going to see him in all his majesty and all his glory. We're going to see him worshipped continually. 
And we're going to see what does that mean? How should that impact our faith? We're going, going to be in Revelation 4 today, Revelation 4 and 5, um, starting with Revelation 4, verse 2, if you're wanting to look it up in your own personal Bible. I know some of you, uh, when I say Revelation, some of you get really excited because you love this stuff, right? Others of you are like, oh boy, we're going to get a crazy sermon today, <laughs> right? Some of, you, some of you may be from a Christian background, and you may know that, you know, different people have different ideas about how Revelation should be interpreted, right? You have a different view on the millennium or, or what Revelation is addressing. Is it about the future or the past or blah, 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 blah. There's lots of different things you can argue about, about Revelation. Uh, I have a view on those various different debates, and guess what? I'm not going to tell you what it is. Because I think what happens a lot with Scripture is that we get so caught up in controversies and we get so caught up in debates that we miss what God's Word is saying about who He is, about what He's done, and about how it's supposed to relate to our world. And so we're going to look at Revelation 4 and 5 today. We're going to learn about what's happening in the throne room of God, and that has relevance for your life regardless of your take on the millennium, all right? So we're going to bypass those controversies, and we're going to focus on what God would say to us from this passage. Just a tiny bit of background. Revelation was written by John. He was one of, uh, of Jesus' disciples. And what we're going to read today is a vision that he experienced about God's throne room. All right? So we're starting at Revelation 4, verse 2. John writes, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. The one seated on the, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So you can see, if you're reading in the original language, scholars will tell you that when John is writing, you can tell by his word choice and by his grammar that he's having a hard time describing what he's seeing. It's like it's stretching his imagination. It's, it's too glorious. It's too wonderful. It's hard for him to get a grasp on how he should describe it because it's the glory of God. So one of the things that he says is that the one who sits on the throne, the best way I can describe it is that he looks like jewels. That's what he says here. He says it looks like jasper and carnelian. Now, those are two jewels that would be familiar to uh, God's people because they were two of the jewels that would be on the breastplate of the high priest when he served in the temple. So it's actually the first and the last jewel. There would be 12 jewels representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and Jasper and Carnelian would be the first and the last. And so probably this is a reference to one of the ways that God gets described in Revelation, which is as the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. He was there before everything was created, and he always will be there. He is eternal. And so John is trying to describe God, and, and the best way he can describe it is saying it was a little bit like Jasper and Carnelian. Those two jewels happen to also have a fiery appearance, a fiery red appearance. And when God appears in the Old Testament, he often appears as a fire, right? The burning bush 
or, or the pillar of fire that leads God's people in the wilderness. And so he says, the best way I can describe this is some sort of fiery red something, right? Then he says, around God's throne, he says, there's a rainbow that looks like an emerald. And at this point, I'm like, John, those are mutually exclusive, pal. It's either green or it's lots of different colors. Can't be both. But what it shows us, again, is that John is having a hard time trying to describe this awesome, awesome sight that he is beholding. He tells us there's 24 smaller thrones, and each one of those has an elder on it. Excuse me. And, and each elder has a crown. He says there's thunder and there's lightning. And then he says there's a sea in front of God's throne. And the sea is so calm that it looks like glass or crystal. Now, in the ancient world, the sea was considered the place of chaos. They would write about it in ancient Jewish texts, and they would write about how they thought there were monsters in there and that no one can tame the sea. And so it's significant for a Jewish reader to hear that the sea is calm. It's calm. It's a, it's a show. It's a way of showing the power of God, that he can tame even the sea. And so there's various things here that John is describing to try and show the power, the glory, the majesty of God. And for the rest of Revelation, after Revelation 4 and 5, until the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21 and 22, it's all judgment, 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 judgment. And all of that judgment comes from this throne. It's because he's on the throne that he's worthy to judge He's the one who's worthy. He has the authority to judge. And that's part of what he's communicating when he says that he is on the throne. He is the one who is in the center. He is the most important, the most powerful being. Right? So the readers at the time when this was written, they would have thought, oh, wait, that's what Caesar says about himself. But what Revelation is saying, no, not Caesar, the most powerful being at that time, and maybe to us, he would say, not some entertainment figure, not some athlete, not the president. No, it is God who is on the throne. It is him who is at the center, the most important, the most powerful being in the universe. He has no problems, only plans. It's almost funny to consider him having problems. And part of the purpose of this passage is that John is trying to help his readers remain grounded because what's happening is the, the people that he originally wrote to were starting to experience persecution for their faith, and they expected more persecution. And so part of what John is saying is when you experience that persecution, when you experience that, that chaos, that upheaval in your life, it's temporary. God is still on the throne. He will continue to be on the throne. His plans will be accomplished. He is in control. Jesus is still on his throne. Richard Bauckham, who's a, a famous scholar, says this. He says, Revelation claims to have a truth that's worth dying for, and that truth is not relative. Revelation's vision of the truth centers on God. Everything else flows from the understanding of the nature of God. And an important part of God's nature is that he's glorious, too glorious for us to comprehend. 
When I think of something that's, that's too beautiful and too glorious for me to comprehend, I think of a trip to Yosemite National Park that I took this past October. And I'm going to throw up some pictures for you on the screen, uh, but I just have to warn you, it doesn't do it justice. Right? And if you've ever been to a site like that, in the moment, you, you know, you take the picture and you're like, wow, that's not that. Right? And you're just dumbfounded. You can't make sense of it. It's just so beautiful. That's what I think John was experiencing. He was experiencing something that was overwhelming to his sentence, senses, the glory of God. You can see my son there. I don't think he was quite appreciating the glory. I think he was thinking about his next snack, as he often is. But Timothy George, another Bible scholar, he says this about the glory of God. He says, in much contemporary theology today, the note of God's grandeur, his greatness, his glory that so fills the Bible is noticeably missing. This can be corrected, however, when we realize that the God of the Bible is a consuming fire, according to Deuteronomy 4.24. He is the living God into whose hands to fall is a dreadful thing according to Hebrews 10, 31, right? So that would be if you are, have rejected God's offer of salvation and you end up being judged by God, then you fall into his hands and you experience his judgment and it's a dreadful thing. George goes on to say, this God cannot be relegated to the safety of a seminar room or scrutinized like a butterfly under a microscope. He's bigger than that. And I think that's something that we in the church need to recapture. You know, we, we tend to think of, of Jesus, and we, and we talk about his love, and we think about him as a shepherd, and he's holding a little lamb, and he's meek and mild, right? Maybe, maybe some of us have even worn a shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy. And, and, and we approach God in this way that is casual. It's casual. And we, we lose sight of this other part of God that I think Revelation 4 would want us to see, which is God Almighty on the throne. He has no problems, only plans. I think that's an important dimension of our faith. And it reminds us something about why we worship. That's a question that, that I want to answer in my sermon today. Why do we worship? It's not to get our spiritual batteries recharged. It's not because God is lonely. It's not because he needs our worship. We worship because he's worthy. We worship because he deserves it. We worship because that's the only response that makes sense when you are exposed to the God of the universe. That's why we worship. When we worship, we are bringing heaven to earth. We are expecting and, and, and enacting what it is like in heaven because those in heaven who are exposed to God, you better believe they worship. One day, everyone will worship. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord because that's the only response that makes sense when you are in the presence of God. It's because of who he is and what he's done that he alone is worthy of our worship. We worship because he deserves it. And so we've talked about the throne of God. We've talked about how he's glorious and majestic and worthy to be praised. And the next thing that I want to talk about is how do the other heavenly beings who are in the throne room with God, how do they respond to him? So let's go back to our passage in Revelation 4, verse 8. 
It says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So let's start with what's the point and what's not the point. In this passage, was not the point. What are those creatures? What do they represent? I don't know. Nobody knows. Who are the elders? What do they represent? I read four different sources as I prepared for this sermon. They had four different answers. I have no idea. It's like the Nephilim. If you've been in church for a while, you know about like this Old Testament random reference to these things called the Nephilim. Nobody knows what they are. If you don't know what I'm talking about right now, guess what? You just joined a club that we're all in because no one knows what they are. <laughs> no one knows what these creatures or these elders are, but that's okay because we know what they do. And what they do is they worship God continually. That's all they do. It says when the creatures do this, the elders do that, and the creatures do this all the time. They worship and they worship and they worship. Why do we worship? Because that's the only response that makes sense. In verse 8, it says that uh, the creatures say to God that he is holy, he is almighty, he is eternal. In verse 11, it says that the elders say to God that he is worthy, and he is Lord and God, and he is creator and sustainer of life. And so they're saying to God, this is who you are, this is the truth about you, and the only response that we can have is that we worship, that we praise you. Now, the next thing it says is that the elders bow down on their faces before God, and they lay their crowns before him. And that actually fits with the original meaning of the word worship in the English language. What it originally meant was when you would bow down on your face before a ruler and kiss their feet or their robe. That's what the word originally meant. And so that's what the elders do. They bow down before God on their faces and then they give their crowns to him, right? And that shows that they only have delegated authority. They have a certain amount of honor. They have a certain amount of authority. They have a title. They have a crown, but it was only ever delegated. It was only ever from God in the first place. And when they are in the presence of ultimate authority and ultimate power, the only response that makes sense is to worship, to lay that crown before him and get on their face. They don't withhold their crowns. You might expect them to, right? Royal people, the people who wear crowns, they're usually rather attached to those crowns, but they don't withhold their crowns. And so my question to you, is there something that you are withholding from God? Is there something in your life that you said, God, you can't have this? Because a partial Lord is no Lord at all. Conditional worship is no worship at all. That's what it represents when the elders lay their crowns before God. E 
even my crown I give to you. If you were here just a, a few moments ago, you know that Pastor Matt was talking about Pursue Night. It's an event that we have at our church where we uh, you know, have an extended time of worship and prayer, but we're doing something special this time. And you have a chance to bring an offering. Maybe to bring something that for you is a crown. Maybe to bring something that for you, you have withheld in the past. It doesn't have to be financial. You know, when we say offering, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is giving you a different opportunity to worship. Because we think worship and we think singing songs, but in the Old Testament, when they would worship, they would give their most prized possession, their best animal from their flock, their best crops from their harvest. They would give it up and say, God, I love you more than this. That was part of their worship. And so we want to give you an opportunity to worship in that way. I'll tell you what I'm going to bring. Uh, for me, uh, becoming a pastor was, was a dream for a long time, but it was a bumpy road. There was a long time where, where I would be studying in seminary, and I did not enjoy seminary. That's pastor school. For those of you that don't have a church background, it was no fun. Uh, not for me. Um, and so I was studying, and I'd be studying on Friday night at 10 p.m., wondering, God, are you ever going to use this? Am I just doing this for no reason? Is this just cruel and unusual punishment? And there were times where, where I was in a former role, and, and I would be setting up for church on Sunday, and I would be bitter because I wasn't in the kind of role that I wanted to be in. And God hadn't, hadn't, hadn't provided the kind of thing that I had expected him to provide when I was wanting to be in ministry. And I was struggling with it. It felt like, you know, God, I see that you're on the throne when I read scripture, but it sure feels like you're not on the throne in this one area of my life. It doesn't feel like you're on the throne over here. It feels chaotic. It feels not in your control. And so for me, one of the things that I'll be bringing at Pursue Night is, is a symbol that God was in control at that time. It's, a, it's something I have in my office. There's, there's two things, actually. There's a cup. I got it from my brother. It says Pastor Peter on it. There's also a, a framed copy of my seminary degree, and I'll be bringing those. Now, I'll probably take them back afterward. Um, so for you, you might leave something here. You might take it back. Whatever makes sense. But for me, that's a crown. For me, that's something that, yeah, like I'm proud of it, but I also realize, hey, no way I was getting those things without God having sustained me through those seasons. It came from him, and I want to acknowledge that. That's going to be part of my worship. And so I encourage you to consider how can you express your worship in a physical way? It's because of who God is and what he has done that he alone is worthy of our worship. So there's one more thing that I want to um, communicate. We, we, we've talked about how the, um, how the heavenly beings responded to God. Right? They were in his throne room. They responded with worship. They, they praise him as holy and, and creator and sustainer. There's one more thing that I want to communicate about why we worship. Right? And for that, we're going to turn to Revelation 5, verse 1.
Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Why do we worship? Well, it's not just because God is majestic and glorious and awesome. It's not just because we're joining with those who are in heaven who who are worshiping, and and that's the only response that makes sense. It's not just because he is creator and sustainer. It's also because he is redeemer. Now, when you read this passage, you might be saying, Pastor Peter, where are you getting redeemer there? I don't see redeemer because it's a little... There's a lot of imagery there, and I'm not going to be able to unpack all of the imagery there for you. But let me unpack the main image. The main image is this. Something had to happen in order for that scroll to be opened. The scroll being opened represents that God is going to judge the earth. He's going to get rid of evil. He's going to bring a new heaven and a new earth. There's going to be no more pain, no more death, no more tears. But before all that can happen... Someone had to open the scroll. Someone had to be worthy to open the scroll. And in order for them to be worthy, they had to do something. What did they have to do? The answer is Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the one who sits on the throne that we talked about in the beginning, the one who is is all-powerful and mighty and all-knowing and all, you know, all everything. That God became one of us. He lived a perfect life. And he died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. To pay the penalty for the fact that we as human beings, we have a tendency to worship the wrong things. We have a tendency to do things that do not honor our creator who sits on the throne and who is worthy of that honor. And scripture says that the penalty for those wrong things that we engage in on a regular basis is death. But God didn't want us to die. And so he sent his own son to take that death in our place. He's the one. It's the lion of Judah who can open the scroll because he's not just a lion. He's not just powerful. He's not just glorious. He's also the sacrificial slain lamb who gave himself up on our behalf. That's why we worship. That's why he's worthy. That's why he can open the scroll. It's because he died on the cross for our sins. The reason why Christians have a bright future ahead of us is because he purchased it, and it was expensive. That's why we worship. That's what it means when this passage says, 
who can open the scroll. We need someone to open the scroll. We need someone who can not only, you know, provide an opportunity for us to have a relationship with God now, that's part of redemption, not only provide a way uh, for us to be forgiven, for us to know that we'll be in heaven with God when we die, but also for us to have hope for the future, that someday the things that we see in our world, the evil that we see in our world, it is going to come to an end, and God is going to make things right. We don't want a God who doesn't judge evil. We don't want a God who doesn't hold uh, evil accountable. Someday, he's going to make things right. And part of that process, part of that scroll opening, it was necessary for Jesus to die. That's what this passage is communicating. It's telling us why we worship. It's because of who God is and what he has done that he alone is worthy of worship. I want to share a quick story with you. You may have heard it before, uh, but I think it applies. There was a man, he, he had a dream. Uh, this is a true story. He had a dream, and, and in this dream, he wakes up in uh, a room with a bunch of filing cabinets. He doesn't know why he's there. He's never been in this room before. So to try and figure out what's going on, he opens one of the filing cabinets, and he looks at one of the cards in the files. And he's immediately embarrassed because it contains a, a detailed account of a sinful thought that he had had. He puts it away, and he goes and he looks at another filing cabinet. And again, it contains a detailed account of, of a lie that he told. There's other filing cabinets that, that, that are super long, Right? What, things that he spent his time on, music that he listened to, games that he played, and then there are some filing cabinets that are short, like people he shared the gospel with. It's a catalog of his whole life. And as he continues to look at cabinet after cabinet and card after card, he decides, I don't want anyone to see some of the things that I spent my time on, that I spent my life on. They're shameful, they're embarrassing. And so he tries to destroy a card, and it just disappears from his hands and goes back in the file. He tries to, to knock over a cabinet, and he can't knock it over. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears in the room. And the man thinks, anyone but you. I don't want you to read all this stuff that I've done. There's some really embarrassing things in here. I'd really just rather you not. How about, you know, we go get ice cream. But Jesus gently pushes him out of the way, and he opens the cabinet. He reads every card, and he signs each one with his name in red. That's why we worship. You and I, we, we could fill up lots of filing cabinets we could fill up lots of filing cabinets with things that we aren't proud of, and it's because we're broken people who need a Savior. And that's why we worship, because God provided one. God provided what we needed. And so it's because of who God is, and it's because of what he's done, that we worship, that he alone is worthy of our worship. 
we've talked today about how God uh, is the one on the throne. He is the one who, who dwells in glory and in majesty. He, he, is, he is grand. His greatness and his glory is, is greater than we can comprehend. We've talked about how he is worshipped continually in heaven. That, that, that that's all the people, the, the, the creatures in heaven do is worship and worship and worship because that's the only reaction that makes sense. He is creator, he is sustainer, and he is also our redeemer. It's because of who he is and what he's done that he alone is worthy of our worship. That's why we worship. Would you pray with me? Lord, we've come here today to worship you in our singing, in our giving, in our hearing from your word, in our fellowshipping with other believers, Lord, to honor you, to show glory to you, God, because we believe that you are worthy to be worshiped. There are so many reasons we we don't have enough pen and paper to list them out, Lord, and we've just talked about a few of them today, and Lord, I pray that in the heart of each person here today, Lord, there would be the conviction that, yes, Lord, you are worthy to be worshiped. God, and that we would respond not just by by, by singing a song here in a moment, Lord, but by dedicating our lives to worshiping you, Lord. You are worthy. You are on your throne. You are redeemer. You are creator. You are sustainer. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. And God, as you reveal yourself to us, Lord, would we respond in the only way that makes sense? In worship. In just a second, I just want you to listen to the words for a moment. See if these are true for your heart this morning. We stand and lift up our hands. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. We bow down and worship him now. How great how awesome is he and together we sing holy is the lord god almighty the earth is filled with his glory holy is the lord together now we stand and lift up our hands yes we do for the joy of the lord is our strength we bow down and worship him now how great how awesome is he and together we sing Oh 
Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.